In retrospect, it all looks very different. It's hard to remember now, hard to push aside the intervening dread and the images that have lodged in the mind, but in those days the uncertainty was still intoxicating. No one knew that it wasn't really spring. No one understood that it was autumn. The air was crisp and cool and terrifically clear, the trees a riotous delight of colors so bold that they blinded us to every signal that winter was approaching. The past was mainly rotten, but it appeared to have passed. The present was pure ebullient collapse, and the future? It hadn't happened yet. For a few weeks in early 2011, hope felt almost material in its sweetness, like you could cut a slice from the air and taste it. In Tunis, a fruit vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi, humiliated one time too many by the police, determined at least to die with dignity. He doused his clothes and skin and hair with paint thinner and lit himself ablaze on the steps of City Hall. It took more than an hour for the ambulance to arrive. Within a week, the streets were burning. Within a month, President Zine al-Abedin ben Ali, who had ruled Tunisia for 22 years, had fled the country. Within two months, the flames had spread to Egypt, and Hosni Mubarak had stepped down after 30 years of uninterrupted rule. The fire jumped to Morocco, Algeria, Jordan, Yemen, Bahrain, Oman, even Saudi Arabia. Libya rose in open-armed revolt. By mid-March, only Syria was still quiet. And Palestine. I arrived in Ramallah for the first time on March 15, 2011. Nowhere else in the Middle East had the oppression and violence seemed so intractable for so long. The worst days of the Second Intifada had ended several years before, but nothing whatsoever had been resolved. Peace talks between Israel and the Palestinian Authority had collapsed in 2010. Only the Americans seemed to mourn them. To most Palestinians, the previous 20 years of on-again, off-again negotiations had been one long charade, a glitzy show for the cameras that served mainly to hide the grinding and ever-escalating humiliations of life under occupation. What Israelis experienced as relative calm, Palestinians lived out as a slow and steady exercise in annexation. More settlements, more prisoners, more evictions and home demolitions, more land lost to the path of the wall. The number of Israeli settlers living in the West Bank had more than tripled since the first Oslo Agreement was signed in 1993. Assaults on Palestinians by soldiers at checkpoints, or by settlers anywhere else, were so common that they rarely made the news. But things were changing. Elsewhere, entire populations were taken to the streets. Tyrannies that had seemed destined to last forever were collapsing left and right. The air seemed crisp and clear. Palestine had seen major uprisings in each of the two previous decades, surely, if it could happen in the comparatively placid political climes of the Maghreb and the Gulf, Palestine would not be long in rising up. But whom to rebel against? Ostensibly, at least, the cities and towns of the West Bank were governed by the Palestinian Authority, which was controlled by Fatah, the secular nationalist party established in 1959 by Yasser Arafat and currently led by Mahmoud Abbas. The Gaza Strip was ruled by Hamas, an offshoot of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, founded during the First Intifada in the late 1980s. Elections had not been held since 2006. Hamas had won, but Fatah, with covert encouragement and support from the Bush administration and the Israelis, had tried to push them from power. Hundreds died in factional fighting. 
the plan failed. Since 2008, Hamas had held on to Gaza, and Abbas had ruled the West Bank, though his term as president officially expired in January 2009. The legislature had not convened since 2007. Each faction persecuted and imprisoned the other's loyalists in the territory under its control. There was, in other words, no legitimate government in place. And then there was Israel, whose troops occupied the West Bank, directly governing more than 60% of it and imposing their will on the remainder through a variety of less-than-subtle means. Gaza, they merely bombed and blockaded. Where to begin? With the glove or the hand inside it? That was the question facing a small group of young activists, mostly women, mostly the children of the urban professional middle class, English-speaking and technologically astute. They decided to start with the glove, and to do so gently, discreetly, not by criticizing their leaders, but by urging them to end the division that for half a decade had cleaved Fatah from Hamas and the West Bank from Gaza. Challenging the PA was impossible, one young activist told me. They would all land in jail. By focusing on the inoffensively patriotic demand for unity, he hoped, activists could open a space for dissent without spooking the leadership. To get the movement going, they called for simultaneous demonstrations in the West Bank and in Gaza on March 15, 2011.